People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. Now, cricket has played a huge part in all of our lives, hasn't it, at the beginning of 2016, and a fascinating book has just been released with an interesting tie-up. Listen to its title, Empire, War and Cricket in South Africa, the story of Logan of Mikey's Fontaine and of cricket, and it was written by Dean Allen, who is my guest today. This is a fascinating biography of James Douglas Logan, the man who gave us Mikey's Fontaine. It's also the unique social and political history of the workings of the British Empire in South Africa during the late 19th century, and it's described as an entertaining and at times unbelievable story of cricket's origins in South Africa. And Dean Allen's association with South Africa began in the 1990s, developed further during his postgraduate studies at Stellenbosch University. He's taught extensively at universities in South Africa, as well as Australia, Northern Ireland, and his native England. And he's also published extensively in the areas of sport, history, and sociology. And Dr. Dean Allen, it's very good to welcome you with such a nice book. Welcome to Fine Music Radio. Thank you, Rodney. What a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to know where this passion came for um, Mikey's Fontaine and for writing this book, which is apparently part of a PhD. Indeed it was. It's been some journey. I first, as you mentioned, I first came to South Africa in the mid-90s and fell in love with this country. Um, and then I started to uh, embark on my academic career, which led me into the, the field of sports history. I wanted to understand more about the, the, the unique history of this country, but do it through the lens of sport, which is such an integral part of South Africans' lives. Um, and people had mentioned this place, Mikey's Fontaine, out in the Karoo, and there was a cricket connection. And not only that, just as a, someone who was interested in the, in the history of this country, I should go and visit. So I think uh, it was the late 90s. I first went out there for a weekend, and I was absolutely enthralled by this place. Um, people that have visited there or know about it, it's a perfectly preserved Victorian village in the middle of nowhere, basically. And then the more I dug, of course, the more I realized that this was an undocumented uh, story. I mean, a Scotsman that arrived in the late uh, 1800s and penniless and made his money very quickly and built this town. But not only that, there was a cricket connection. I'd heard that the first English cricket teams had played at this place. Um, the first ever in South Africa? Not the first ever. That's part of the folklore, I'm afraid, that, oh. that surrounds the place. Um, okay. the, the, the first test match, of course, took place in, in Port Elizabeth. But Mikey's Fontaine was famous for certainly hosting the early English cricket teams and mm -hmm. the, the cream of South African cricket played out there. Um, a first-class cricket pitch was, was laid out there in 1894 to the cost of thousands of pounds. And why? That's what I was going to say, asking. why? Exactly. Because it's a long way away. It's three hours from Cape Town. Indeed, indeed. And, uh, and by this stage, of course, I'd started my, uh, um, my master's degree at Stellenbosch. I was looking at sport during the South African War, that period where, which has shaped so much oh, of our history. Right. And I realized there was such a gap in, this, in, this, in the story of cricket. So my chapter on cricket really did expand, and which led to a PhD, most of which was completed Stellenbosch. Um, I was between England and, and South Africa at that time. Um, and then I embarked on it, writing this story of James Logan of Mikey's Fontaine. There hadn't been a book written about him apart from one book, um, a rather amateur history, should I say, but by reading that book by um, uh, Robert Toms, uh, Logan's Way it's called, I, I realized there was an incredible story and this was something I had to get my teeth into. And that, So with the time and the inclination and the passion to do this, I discovered this amazing story which has led to this wonderful book, as you said. 
But there's a lot of things to tie up there, isn't there? There's cricket in South Africa, sport in South Africa through history. There's the Boer War. There's Cecil John Rhodes, isn't he? Because he's in the book, I think he's in your first line. Yeah, yeah. Cecil, Cecil Rhodes, of course, is in the news now. I mean, the well, first line of the first line of my book says Cecil John Rhodes is on record as saying he only met two creators in his time, himself and James Douglas Logan. I mean, this was fantastic stuff. Mm. Um, as I mentioned, this book has taken me with the PhD and turning it into a book has taken me probably ten years of my life. So, the whole issue with Rhodes at the moment makes it even more contemporary. It means it's something we can discuss at the moment. Absolutely, and I mean, look, the the colonial element as well is very important, isn't it? Because that's how, in a sense, cricket came to South Africa. So, although colonialism as well at the moment is very unfashionable. Um, we are in a situation where something like this is important. It was there, it existed, and a lot of good did come out of it, like cricket. Well, um, I was privileged enough to arrive in the mid-90s when the archives of this country really opened up. I mm. mean, colleagues of mine and myself, we've written about the rich African uh, history of the game, for example, and other sports, not just cricket, rugby and football. Um, so there was certainly a need to write a history like this. And as I said, there was, there, it was missing. It was part of this kind of it was, it was folklore surrounded this story. Now, Cecil Rhodes and James Logan and these kind of people, of course, they became benefactors of sport at that time. Yes, they made their money through diamonds and gold and through, yes, unscrupulous means. They exploited um, people. Um, but was Logan also, also a bit like that? Very much so. And I bring that out in the book. I mean, I don't I don't pull any punches. I mean, mm -hmm. this is not a this is not a book to glorify that period, but it actually explains the kind of legacy that these people left. And one of those legacies was international sport. James Logan was responsible for bringing the first international teams, albeit cricket, down to South Africa. And once South Southern Africa or the colonies of Southern Africa were part of this imperial brotherhood, then the thing really did expand. So that's a lot of my work has, has looked at sport, how it created this idea of empire and brotherhood. And you only have to look at places like the West Indies, Australia, India especially, where sport was taken and cricket was, was at the, the, the centre of this, of this um, relationship that existed between the mother country and parts of the British Empire. And here in South Africa, it, it occurred relatively late, but of course it was on the back of diamonds and gold, and there was no coincidence with that, of course. Sport was brought down at a time when the political um, associations were, were trying to be strengthened because of this major major um, discovery of, of, this, of this wealth. What sort of time span are we talking about, uh, Dean? When can, can you put a finger on when the first cricket match was played at Mikey's Fontaine? Well, the f record, um, I was interviewed on Test Match Special at Durban, which was quite a privilege, and um, Jonathan Agnew asked, uh, asked me that a similar question. I mean, the first cricket that was played in South Africa is on record as being in 1802, with the arrival of the, of the British military here. Um, so cricket was being played here, but it, significantly it was with the arrival of the international um, teams, the English cricket team. The first team arrived in 1888-89. Um, Major Wharton's team arrived in the Cape. Uh, but what it needed was people, benefactors, who could who could put up the money to bring these teams down. Step forward our Scotsman of Mikey's Fontaine, James Logan, who would, who would then get involved from 1891, which is the arrival of the second English cricket team, and, and the rest is just an incredible history. So we're looking at the late 1800s, but as I said, it, is, it really does parallel the discovery of diamonds up in Kimberley and later gold. And then there's the Boer War. Of course, <laughs> of course. But let's come to the Boer War and that tie-up in a moment, but your first piece of music. I see, I was interested in your list of music, uh, Dean, because you've chosen music that somehow connects you to South Africa, and the first piece, Flat Stanley. Tell me why this is here. Yeah, I mean the the music I've chosen really is a is a is a 
a soundtrack to my experience here. I mean, when I first arrived in the mid-90s, I, uh, and I was privileged enough to study at Stellenbosch University, of course, as a mature student at the time, I was a little bit older, I had these fantastic, this music that was a backdrop to many of my experiences. Flat Stanley is a, it, a now Mac Stanley, of course, a Cape Town band, uh, the voice of Andrew Mack, uh, the, the, the big man with the big voice, absolutely beautiful tunes that this, this band produced. Um, a little bit later, I think I, I first experienced them in the mid-2000s, um, and um, yeah, no, the, the first album of, of Secrets and Wine, which this, this track comes from, really is a soundtrack to my South African experience at that time. called Renegades by a group Flat Stanley, the first choice of my guest, Dr. Dean Allen, whose new book Empire, War and Cricket in South Africa has just been published. And your, as you say, your South African soundtrack to the music that you've chosen here. Yeah, beautiful song that um, uh, Flat Stanley, who are now called Max Stanley, of course. They had to change their name, I believe, because of a cartoon in, in America, but still very active here in Cape Town and produce some wonderful tracks. I just want to carry on our conversation about Mikey Fontaine, because I remember when I first saw Mikey Fontaine, I couldn't believe it. This little sort of Edwardian Victorian outpost in the middle of the Karoo. And for some neat reason, names like... Kitchener come to mind. Does it, is he covered in your book? Does he play a role? Well, of course, Kitchener is very fun. Is, is a central figure in the South African War, and uh, like a lot of the famous generals of his time, Ironside and Haig, for example, he would have he would have stayed at Mikey's Fontaine, and James Logan would have been the genial host. 
Um, there was a suggestion actually by Kitchener and then Milner later that uh, Mikey's Fontaine may be even used as a concentration camp or really? a detention yes, camp yeah. later on. But of course, for James Logan, Mikey's Fontaine was the was this wonderful resort, health resort that he built in the late in in the eighteen eighties, and the rich and famous stayed there. So he, you know, he had the likes of Olive Schreiner, our famous South African yes. novelist, yeah. who was who was based there, who wrote some of her finest work at Mikey's Fontaine. She described the wonderful isolation of the place and um, the exhilaration of a train arriving from Cape Town and bringing that you know that uh, element of civilization as it were. Have you ever done that? Been on a train and passed through Mikey's Fontaine? I have. I have. I experienced it about two years ago after the book had been finished actually mm. it was the one thing I wanted to do because I'd read how, how the cricket teams and how Logan passed through the Hex River Valley and all these wonderful scenes and it was exactly as I imagined I mean it takes quite a long time to get there yes, yes. but to go through this place and to see its, its, uh, its isolation certainly in terms of the rail, railway because that's how it was built of course forget the roads I mean the roads bypassed it now but then I, uh, there's a piece in the book that up to nine that, that up to nine engines at a time the London Times correspondent wrote were actually in or around the vicinity of Mikey's Fontaine this was a real sort of hotbed of rail traffic at that time and, and it was bringing the rich and famous so we mentioned Olive Schreiner another famous resident was George Alfred Lohman who W.G. Grace that f you know that famous Victorian cricketer with the, yes. with the fine beard described yes. as the greatest cricketer of his generation George Lohman arrived um, in the 1880s he was sent down by Surrey Cricket uh, he played for England he's still got some of the f finest bowling figures for England would you believe in even to this date but he was suffering from consumption or TB and um, James Logan met him as he got off the ship at Cape Town uh, docks he was on his way to Beaufort West another another famous Karoo resort um, Logan said no my dear boy you're coming with me all expenses paid and now of course he had the famous novelist in Shrine and he had a world known um, sportsman <laughs> so it brought him publicity and, yeah. he, and it brought you know the rich and famous to, to this unlikely destination in the Karoo. That ties up with a story that I wondered because I knew that someone had set up Mikey's Fontaine or someone went there for health reasons for asthma or as you said TB or something because yeah. you said earlier it was used as a health a place where you had the perfectly clean air. Well, they talk about the champagne air of the Karoo, don't they? Mm, and they James do. Logan marketed that, of course. I mean, how he actually came about uh, actually to create this town is an interesting story. I mean, he arrives in 1877 as a penniless Scot, a working-class Scot, who was on his way to Australia on a ship. It docked in Simonstown. Clearly, by that stage, he'd had conversations with people and diamonds had been discovered. This was a wealthy part of the world. He takes his chances as a young man. He, he gets signed off by the ship's master and he makes his way to Cape Town Station. Within a matter of months, he's promoted from porter to Cape Town master of Cape Town Station. The, the guy clearly had charisma and, uh, and some ability. He had experience. He's worked since the age of 14 back in, back in the borders of Scotland on the local railways. So he had this experience. But the reason why he got to Mikey's Fontaine, he was offered the position of district superintendent of that region. Now, Mikey's Fontaine existed. It was a small railway siding with a couple of kind of tumbled-down buildings. But Logan saw the potential of this. He wanted to create his own empire. He'd now acquired wealth through diamonds, of course, some through the, rate, the, the catering facilities that he acquired, but not as much as been made out in the past. And he wanted to create something where no one else had done anything, and that's what he did. He built this oasis in the Karoo, and he bought the land around Mikey's Fontaine. He, built, he bought the adjoining farms, and that's when he set about building this Victorian village.
And the Milner Hotel, did he build that as well? Very much so. I mean, that's the, the Hotel Milner, hotel as it Milner. was called. David Rawdon, my good friend, the late David Rawdon, of course, changed the name to the Lord Milner, even more imperious. But it was the Hotel Milner, named after Alfred Milner, the Cape Governor of the time. Logan knew which side uh, to, to keep on when, in terms of his politics. That only was completed just as the South African War broke out. It was the only time that this Scotsman really was... Um, he was he had a, an aspect of Ill, Ill timing. But, he, of course, he turned the whole thing around. The cover of my book shows how he used the, the publicity. <laughs> we've, got, we've now not got the, the rich and famous staying there. We've got the cream of the British military. He invites the British forces to base themselves at Mikey's Fontaine. So the Hotel Milner now is ha- housing, as I said, people at Ironside and Hague in Kitchener at the later mm. date. And of Strategic course, it, move. Without very much to his Without advantage. a doubt. And of course it protects his, his, his town from, from what we could say divided loyalties from a lot of the farmers and the, and the, and the, and the, oh, and the Afrikaans yes. population in that area. But that, that is just the end of the story. Leading up to that, Logan had built this incredible reputation of a man who could do no wrong. And he did that through cricket. He did it through politics. He entered politics in 1894. In South Africa. In South Africa. He was a member of the Legislative Assembly here in Cape Town. And, of course, he was one of Rhodes's, you know, staunch allies. He was one one of the progressives, as it were. But what I like about Logan, I think, or what I admire about him, it was his own party. He was one of these political chameleons that kind of crossed the floor when it suited him. Um, An incredible story that some of your listeners might have heard of is the the Logan contract controversy. He had a good friend within Rhodes's first government called Sir James Sivright, and he was the guy that gave away the the government contracts. Um, Now, they were fellow Scotsmen. They were good buddies. Um, Sivright is the chap that was uh, famed for bringing the telegraph down to South Africa, or part of that. He was knighted by Victoria as a result. Um, he gave his friend James Logan the monopoly of all rail catering contracts for 18 years without putting it out for tender. Good now, does that sound familiar in terms <laughs> of... I was just going to say, actually I wasn't going to say, but does it sound familiar or what? And that, that basically brought down Rhodes' first government because John X Merriman, who was more, a more principled member of that that. that uh, at that government, he called Rhodes back from his holiday in England and said, "Enough is enough. These men have them, their fingers in the pots." And Rhodes was forced to dissolve his first government. He had to reform a new ministry as a result of that. James Logan was at the heart of that. Gosh, as you say, what a character he must have been. Incredible. And landing with his bottom in the butter, by the sounds of things, and making just the right contacts and entrepreneurial as well. All those things. I think he was the ultimate ultra entrepreneur and as I said it was opportunity arriving at exactly this time and I think that's how a work like this or a book like this should be taken in the context in which it's written it would never happen again not at all absolutely not now another piece of music Dean Dean Allen this is Arno Carstens I see it is yes now Arno Carstens of course um, the, the, the lead singer or the ex-lead singer of the Springbok New Girls yes. but I I, um, I followed Arno's individual career as it were and this beautiful track Another Universe it was the soundtrack to my visit I remember to the Wanderers in 2005 watching England South Africa on a previous visit and I heard this song over the Tannoy and it uh, and it stayed with me ever since a beautiful track <laughs> Final bow, let's make the silent sign. Nobody needs to know where we're off to. We're invisible alive, we're the whispers in the scream. We're not living in the West, and we're not coming from the East. Sharp is the night. And alive is the night 
I'm gonna slit the throat of the Holy Ghost Ceremony to the UFO An SMS and where we wanna go From the galaxy of blues To a universe we choose No more crying and just maybe Somebody to hold From the galaxy of blues To a universe we choose No more crying and just maybe Somebody to hold A well-known South African artist, that Arno Carstens and the song Another Universe. And it was the choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, the author Dr. Dean Allen, whose book Empire, War and Cricket in South Africa, Logan of Mikey's Fontaine, has just been published. Dean, just before we come back, because there's so many questions I want to ask you about Mikey's Fontaine, Logan, Crickets and the Boer War. You've spoken a lot, like this music, about your passion for South Africa. And when you first came here, whenever it was, 1990s, why? What brought you here? Why, why has South Africa done this to you? Well, I'm a, I'm a proud Englishman. I was born in the West Country, in West Somerset, on the edge of Exmoor, so a beautiful part of England. And I'd had no connection with South Africa at all. And um, I first arrived as a tourist. I actually met a South African dentist, would you believe, back in my native uh, Somerset in Taunton. And... Um, and she invited me here to actually come on holiday. And as soon as I arrived, of course, I saw the mountain and the beaches. But more than that, I engaged with the people. And I realized this is where I wanted to be. And ever since then, I've, I've probably spent as much time here as I have in the United Kingdom and, and elsewhere. As you said, I've worked in Australia, in Ireland. I've been privileged to have traveled the world with my, with my work. But South Africa is where my heart is, where my soul is. And for the past five years, um, I've been working at um, here in Cape Town, here permanently. I was working at uh, Cape Peninsula University of Technology. And during that time, I got my permanent residency, which was a very proud moment. And uh, forever, I will have a relationship with this place. And I, and I consider it home um, as much as I do England. And of course, it's the, the people that mean so much to me. And the, the response to this book has been absolutely incredible. Um, as I explained, Rodney, I do a lot of talks and I travel the country and the passion for this subject and, and South African history is there from, from all backgrounds. And that's something that really does inspire me. And uh, I aim to come back as much as possible in the future. And I'm Totally will settle here again at some point. As I mentioned, I've just taken a job back at Bournemouth University last June from a career point of view. Um, but really, this is where my heart is in, in Cape Town. So when, if you were to describe your profession, how would you do that? Well, on my, on my business card, it says author, lecturer, historian. And I think I'm probably a mixture of all those. I mean, I enjoy people. I enjoy talking to people. I mean, writing the book was the hard thing. But actually uh, going out there and presenting it is abs an absolute joy. 
Uh, I suppose I'm I'm an academic. I'm a senior lecturer at university, and I enjoy working with students and teaching. Um, but it's it's, it's sp- spreading the knowledge and, sp- and and talking about the subject and engaging in these kind of things, which are fundamental to our South Africa of today. We talked about roads earlier. We talked about this colonial legacy. It is part of our history. The great man Desmond Tutu himself, when when the whole roads controversy at UCT started, I mean, he said something quite interesting. He said, we must respect each other's history. Um, We can remove statues. We can remove certain aspects of our history from from the past, but they did exist. We need people to engage with those histories and write about them. As I said, I don't uh, glorify it, but it needs to be discussed. And it needs a book like this. I think is rather unique in South Africa. Um, at my PhD Viva, which was in, back in 2008, which is quite a terrifi- terrifying experience for anybody who's done a PhD, I had three history professors back in England speaking to me. But the one said, I've done something unique here. I've brought together these wider themes of empire, cricket, culture, war, imperialism, but I've run it through the life of an individual. And that was a big challenge, of course, because, um, you know... That individual being Logan. Being James of Logan, of Mikey's Fontaine, of this, of this place. And uh, the more I dug, the more I realized this was an incredible story. So my supervisor at the time, she said, Dean, you must turn this into a book. This is, this is far too good of a story to be an academic work, you know, lost on the dusty shelves of some university. So to answer your question, I, I, I think I, I am a, a, an author and a lecturer foremost and a, a communicator and a public speaker. I think that, that's what I enjoy doing more than anything. But I'm still intrigued about your... You said there was a spark that really got you going on this book. Uh, Because, and it comes through this, was Mikey's Fontaine affected by the Boer War in any way? Did it ever see any any action, any fighting? Well, it uh, it, it, it did in that area, but the, the visitors to Mikey's Fontaine, one, one of the things it's famous for is the, is the fact that you can you can still walk the Feld around the, around the town and you can still see the bully beef cans and the, and the, and the bullets and the, the thick Victorian glass that 10,000 Imperial troops left as they as they worked their way up to the, to the front. They were camped there from o- late October 1899 um, and Logan, off, as I said, offered his town, so you can feel it you can sense it it's tangible you can touch the history still there today in terms of action there was the siege of sutherland i write about which is a, a lesser known siege it was bloodless and it was very it was very you know the notes were sent between the two opposing sides and it was but that happened logan was aware that certainly in the guerrilla phase of the war there were commandos moving around shots were fired in the vicinity jan smuts brought his commando just north of mikey's fontaine through that region but remember logan had the british guarding his town i even raised his own mikey's fontaine uh, uh, mounted infantry of course they never saw active service because the British Army was there. But what it did, it gave him good publicity. He was the ideal colonial, and he was thanked for that from no less than Victoria herself. Um, but the story that really sparked this interest was when I visited Mikey's Fontaine and I started to read more about the man. And I couldn't believe that James Logan was behind a cricket tour, the second ever South African cricket tour that left these shores back to the old country. They toured England during the South African War in 1901. They left Cape Town in April 1901 and they toured the United Kingdom as a first-class tour while the war was still going on. And that was what really inspired me to write this story. (laughs) My goodness. Sorry, just let me get this right. You mean he took a South African team, a team of South African cricket players, to England 
in the middle of the Boer War. He had already sponsored the early cricket, the early England visits in 1891 and, and again in 1895 and 1899. He was the man that put the money up to bring these English teams down. But his great ambition was to take his own team. Remember, he's new money. He's a working class man. He knows he needs to buy social elevation, as it were. He's and he does that through through this game of cricket. But to do it to really achieve his aims, he he wants to take his own team back to the old country. He tries to do it in 1899, of course. His friend Lord Hawke in the corridors of the MCC agrees to this, but the war breaks out. But that provides him with an adva- with a with a surprising advantage. As we say, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial. Uh, excellence. Indeed. The South African Cricket Association had disbanded, of course, because you don't play sport when, when war is taking place. It's a far greater game. James Logan gets, gets in touch with his friend Lord Hawke and, as I said, back at Lords in London, and they organise a first-class tour, and it takes place in 1901. And an incredible part of this story, they arrive as Arthur Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame writes in the in the press, "How dare a team of South African cricketers arrive on our shores when they should be fighting a war back in their own country?" Oh, James Logan, the 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 wonderful self-publicist that he yes. was, a media man. Remember, he'd already bought his own newspaper in Worcester, so all the news that came out was he controlled that as well turned the thing round and said Sir Arthur Conan Doyle I understand your sentiment I'm a I'm a uh, you know I'm in, I'm an imperialist myself but he said can I point out I myself have done my duty in this war supposedly wounded in a battle which would never happened and my cricketers have all done their bit and within weeks he turned turned the publicity round he became a darling of the British press and he went on to play W.G. Grace's team at the Crystal Palace. He went to put on to play the MCC at Lords, and there's wonderful pictures in the book which which uh, document this tour, which is the second official South African tour to leave the, um, South Africa for England. Okay, we're going to come back to that and also to those pictures. I'm going to ask you who, how the cricket team did in view of recent events here in Cape Town. Um, but your next piece of music, Watershed Angel, is this another um, local sort of journey for you? Yes, indeed. Watershed are a South African band that have been around for a number of years now and I remember being at Stellenbosch University and uh, they visited Paul Russ uh, School and they played in this, actually on the edge of the sports field there. Um, they've gone on to fame and fortune now of course but this was in the early days and their first album was absolutely stunning and this track which is one of the most well-known ones came off of that and it really does bring back good memories.
time I look at you, I see a better side of me. A loving side I didn't know was there. A loving mind, a loving soul, a tide of love, a love of gold. Waves of emotion in the Watershed, a piece called Angel, and another choice of South African music from my guest, Dr. Dean Allen. We're talking about his newly published book, which is proving to be completely fascinating, actually, listening to Dean, uh, Empire, War, and Cricket in South Africa, Logan of Mikey's Fontaine. And what I wanted to ask you, just paging through this book, you have the most beautiful pictures. And before I ask you about where you got them from, because it's incredibly illustrated, it's like a, it's an archive, actually, of historical photographs. But there's a picture here. We were talking about our team going across the UK. London County versus Logan's team. And you've just pointed out here W.G. Grace, known as the champion. But who is that sitting between his knees? And I'm not sure if I believe what you're going to say. Incredible story, Rodney. No. So James Logan has taken his own team, his own South African team, over to the old country in 1901 in the midst of the South African War. And his own son, James Logan, only plays cricket, first-class cricket, once in his life, and he does so for his country. Of course, James Logan selects his his son, Jimmy Logan Jr., to... uh, play um, quite high up up in, up in the order of, um, of the batting lineup as part of the South African team. So the picture you refer to in the book, of course, is we've got the most famous Victorian after Victoria herself, W.G. Gray, sitting there with his team of professionals, London County, and in between his legs, sitting in a team photo, is James Logan Jr. So if you want to play cricket for South Africa, make sure your father controls the team. <laughs> That's that's an excellent story, but you, there's so many stories that I just want to get into this book. Where did you get all the pictures from? As I said, it's like a, 
Um, it's an, a magnificent archive of sport and Mikey's Fontaine in South Africa and the Boers and Victoriana. Yeah, no, the pictures I'm 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 very very proud of. I mean, it it was it was something I I really wanted to incorporate within the book, not just as a central spine of the book, but throughout the text, so people could refer to these images. They say that a picture tells a thousand words, and it does so in this case. It's part of the journey I took to write this book, Rodney. I mean. I, I met David Rawdon, and David Rawdon was an incredible man. He bought Mikey's Fontaine in 1968, uh, famous for the Marine Hotel in Hermanus, Lanzarac in Stellenbosch. And a lot of a lot of the people that come to my talks, I explain about my relationship with David. And he said to me, uh, he said to me early on in one of our first meetings, "You write a book about this place, Mikey's Fontaine, and the breakfasts are on me." So that's why I think <laughs> it took me so long because the breakfasts are fantastic out there. Now Dave passed away unfortunately in 2010, which was which was a great sadness to me, and it sort of put the book on hold. But I I remember our deal and that's why I got back on the horse should, should I say and I finished this this book and he's up there smiling I'm sure as we're speaking today but to go back to the images they they actually come from the Logan family archives and the Logan's uh, grandson Major John, uh, John Boost actually lived at Mikey's Fontaine up to his death in 2004 and I'd heard that he was sitting on an incredible collection of pictures now I'm not the first person to try to write this story of James Logan others have tried but have given up others have taken artifacts and not returned them so you can imagine Major Boost he wasn't very open when I first introduced myself but I was persistent and I, I won his trust and eventually he gave me access to the collection. Now I walked into that, that house at Mikey's Fontaine, it's called Tweedside Lodge, it's James Logan's, uh, it was James Logan's private dwelling. The first incidentally to have its own private electricity supply in South Africa, to have waterborne sewerage, which doesn't sound too glamorous, but to be able to flush your toilet in those days was big news. James Logan built Tweedside Lodge and Major John Boos would live there um, every every kind of one weekend in, in a month, so I would I, I I gained access to to this to this um, to this building. Oh my goodness! I walked into this room, the famous billiard room, and what I saw just uh, blew me away. On the wall, we had poems from Rudyard Kipling. We had letters from Cecil Rhodes. We had the original silver trophies from the English cricket teams of the 1890s. I realised that I'd struck gold. So I I took some images, and um, and that's where the that's where the collection comes from. Now, major boost, of course, um, unfortunately passed away shortly after that meeting. And a lot of the artifacts and a lot of the images you see in this book were actually sold off at auction by his daughter. But it was up to me to finish this book, and I did so um, with the support of, of, of his daughter, Jenny, who farms at Tweedside, which is just down the road from Mikey's Fontaine. And she was at my launch at Stellenbosch University and here in Cape Town at the book lounge and was absolutely delighted that these images that they've been sitting on as a family have now seen the light of day. But just thinking now, Dean, when did the original Logan die? How long ago was that? Well, James Logan died in 1920. He, um, at the end of the South African War, the landscape changed, of course. He withdrew from politics in 1908, and then we had the Union of South Africa. Of course, Rhodes was no more. So he knew when to get into things, but he knew when to get out of things. So he lived out his days relatively quietly as a wealthy man at Mikey's Fontaine. But, of course, going back to the archives that I explained... It was a responsibility for me to tell this story. I discovered these incredible images and, and documents from Rhodes and Lord Roberts and all these wider, um, you know, figures in imperial history and South African history. So that was significant. Now, one of my probably my um, my greatest uh, pleasures in writing this book is what happened last year when the book came out because for me it was important that these archives be documented and retained and looked after remember that I said a lot of it had been sold off at an auction yes because I wanted to know Dean I hope I'm not preempting you but 
when the last person died, I'm not sure who's there at the moment, but you can bring us up to date on that. But where are all these artifacts and pictures and cups? Are they safe? Well, a lot of it, of course, is in the hands of private collectors. They probably don't know what they're sitting on. So if you're out there listening, please, um, you know, get in touch because we'd like, like to document a lot of this. But with the majority of the, of the artifacts that I've mentioned that were in the book, um, last year at Stellenbosch we had the launch and uh, I persuaded James Logan's great-granddaughter, Jenny, to, 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 to attend and she donated the James Logan archives to Stellenbosch University. So they've been restored and they're, and they're able to be accessed by anyone else interested in the story. Going back to Mikey's Fontaine, after Dave's death in 2010, uh, the village went into the ownership of a trust, which is made up of mainly his family. Um, and also the, the late Liz McGrath um, arrived on the scene, of course, um, the, the great hotelier, uh, the, the owner of Sellers, Hohen Hall, right, etc. Yes, yes. And she, she fell in love with Mikey's Fontaine. I met Liz before she passed away uh, um, last year. And, uh, and she's taken the place to the next level. So at the moment, it's in a healthy state. It's being, it's being managed by the McGrath Collection, but it's owned in a trust by, by David Warden's family. And, of course, I do everything I can to help promote the place and uh, do as much. I haven't got shares in the place. That, that, that more the pity because I think that most people... Emotional shares. Emotional shares is, yes. is it. But I, it, it, it's part of the deal I had with Dave all those years ago. Uh, Dean, let's have another piece of music. Johnny Clegg here. Yes, Johnny Clegg, I mean, a, a South African legend and uh, oh, his classic tune, Impy, which I think really does stir the emotions in terms of, you know, real African feel. And there's a cricket connection here as well, Rodney, and um, I think it was Lance Klusner who used to walk out to this, you know, the great Zulu Zulu cricketer. Um, so, yeah, no, this this re really emotive music, and uh, um, if, I'm missing, if I'm missing Africa in the cold and grey of England, I often put this tune on. Impy! <laughs> Wet weather, straining 
I think I can say the great Johnny Clegg. That piece called Impy. And imagine listening to that in a cold winter's evening in England, pouring with rain. But that's just what my guest does, Dean Allen, Dr. Dean Allen, who's been my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, talking about his book, which is called Empire, War and Cricket in South Africa. And what a fascinating conversation we've had, Dean, about Mikey's Fontaine and these personalities and this extraordinary game of cricket, which is on everybody's lips at the moment. But do you play cricket? This has been meaning to ask you all through the programme. I did at school, and I did the, the odd uh, social game, but I'm, uh, football's been my game, and, a te- and tennis especially, but uh, I've written about the games of empire, which are rugby and, uh, and cricket, of course. Uh, a lot of my past work has dealt with the first Springbok tours, for example, 1906 and Paul Russ and all those wonderful, wonderful tales. I mean, in 1906, the first ever South African team that left these shores in terms of rugby contained a... M- mixture of Afrikaners and English who had fought against each other in the war. So you can see the comparison here. Absolutely. Cricket and, and rugby, the game of empires really had some fantastic backstories behind them. I'm not interested in, in batting averages or bowling performances or who scores the most tries. It's the context in which these games were played at that time. Which sounds as though that's what this book is all about, the meat of this book. But having said you're not interested in figures <laughs> and all that, I wonder how you're going to answer this question. As you know, we've just had this test in Cape Town and um, the South African team perhaps went on top form. Now, with your love of South Africa, who did you support? There's, there you go. That you don't a, have to answer I that. have been asked that, I think, <clears throat> dozens of times this past week, Rodney. And um, I think diplomatically, I, um, I support both teams. Yes, I, um, I think from a marketing point of view, I was supporting the team that was behind because I wanted this uh, test match to go on for five days so I could talk to as many people about the book as possible but I'm absolutely delighted after what happened in Durban that South Africa picked themselves up an incredible innings from Hashim Amla and of course Bavuma's 100 which, Wasn't is, that which I'm a historian that is history in the making I yeah. mean the first the first black African to score a century for South Africa I mean that I'll be writing about that in the future 
And presumably you have followed all the controversies. At the beginning we spoke about the roads must fall controversy, the issue with colonialism and imperialism, the issue of getting our teams more representative, getting more black people onto the teams. You up on all of that? Are yeah, you? yeah, I mean, of course, uh, as, a, as an academic and someone who's a social commentator of South African sport, you have to you have to be aware of uh, things like the quota system, of course. And it, it, it is, a, it is, it is uh, a challenge for South African sport, but it's also something that must be embraced. It's the part of the fabric of this society and its politics of course and I don't think many many of the English visitors actually appreciate you know this this dynamic that's in South African sport um it's it, it's certainly something that uh, that I'm I'm interesting interested in investigating further, and I know. But being here, you appreciate it. You appreciate the passion for sports such as cricket and how sports such as cricket, rugby, football bring together the nation. It's so important. It brings together people of different backgrounds, and um, for me to be able to have contributed for an understanding of how these sports have, have been formed in the past has been an absolute privilege. What's your next book? Is it another one in the pipeline? Well, I uh, good question. Yes, <laughs> After yes. This huge tome. Yes, I'd like what ten years it took you. <laughs> it did. It ten years of my life. So perhaps a, a few months off. And then, but I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at writing. I'm fascinated with the South African War period. And I'm looking at uh, at these uh, famous truces that took place during the war. These kind of uh, gentleman exchanges and the significance of sport during that period. So maybe maybe something on sport during the South African War and the wider kind of context of that. That so watch this space. <laughs> Indeed. Mm. Dr. Dean Allen, before we play your last piece of music, thank you very much. The book is called, let's just do some details of the book now, Empire, War and Cricket in South Africa, Logan of Micah's Fontaine. It's published by Penguin and is available, as you say. But give us your website because I've been to your website and there's a lot of information there about what you do as well. Yeah, no, thank you, Rodney. You know, my website is www.deanallen.co.za. That's Allen with an E-N. Um, and please, if you'd like to visit the website or, or email me at dean at deanallen.co.za, um, there's a lot of details of, of an upcoming book tour that I'll, I'll be doing throughout South Africa. I've got a number of talks here in the Cape, but I'm going to places like East London, Johannesburg, Grahamstown, and I'm taking this book on the road, should we say, during March and April. So, But if your listeners have enjoyed and want to find out more, I'd, I'd love to engage in, in dialogue with that. So please visit my website and um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all those social media sites. So please do follow me. And and keep up to up to date with what I'm up to. That's Dean Allen, and Allen is spelled A W L E N. And um, has the book? Just one last quick question: Has the book been to Mikey's Fontaine? The book is available at Mikey's Fontaine, and it yet sits proudly there in the shop. And um, <laughs> well, the, and and they're also they've also shared in in the proud news, recent proud news, that it was, it was shortlisted for the uh, nonfiction book of the year, um, which was which was uh, a real a real pride. And uh, the people of Mikey's Fontaine. Um, are absolutely delighted with it and I did it I wrote this book as much for them as I as I did for myself so Dr. Dina Allen, thank you. And your last piece of music, Just Ginger, Sugar Man. Well, of course. I mean, we can't uh, uh, we can't play a piece of popular music without uh, mentioning uh, Rodri Rodriguez and that incredible story, of course. But I've I've been clever here because I've combined one of my favourite South African bands, Just Ginger, with one of the most famous South African tracks. So, hope you enjoy. Sugar Man. Won't you hurry? Cause I'm tired of these scenes. For a blue coin, won't you bring back all those colors to my dreams? Silver magic ships you carry, jump. 
People of Notes is brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. FMR 101.3